Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome Todd Haynes. And uh, bef before we start, I just want to say what, um, how exciting it is to see your career progress. Um, I said Todd was one of the very first filmmakers to come to the museum almost exactly 10 years ago um, with uh, Superstar, uh, your notorious and um, right now out of distribution film. And you've been back a few times. And um, in the intervening years, made Poison, of course, Poison, um, and Dottie got spanked and safe, and now this. And it's... Incredible uh, progression from super, little doll movie superstar to this. So, like your big doll movie. <laughs> I mean, it must be sort of a weird time because you made, you wrote the film such a long time ago. You were actually, um, I think, almost four years ago when you were here with Dottie Get Spanked. You were dressed in glam, your glam um, hair, hairdo, and yes. in heavy um, Stanislavski preparation for the film. And now it's, it's it was made. It was premiered at premiered a con a while ago, but it's just hitting the theaters now. So yeah. just like sort of where is it at in your mind, you know, this project? It's, it's funny. It, there is that strange lag time in films, in, in, in you know, any, anyone's uh, experience making films, whether you're into working independently or in Hollywood. But, uh, yeah, it just seems like with, mm -hmm. with me at times it gets to a real extreme. <laughs> and it's bizarre, the whole, you know, the whole kind of press uh, attention to the glitter Glitter rock themes in fashion, and you know, claiming that it's going to be this trend, and you know, mm -hmm. is is very surreal to me because uh, it just it just seems so much the result of a kind of uh, media construction mm -hmm. uh, where a film gets put out, it has a certain theme, those themes are brought back into public attention, yeah. and, you know, related books or documentaries or you know stuff comes out, but it's not really as if it's coming from some deep. Yeah. Profound, you know, place in society that that people like to claim like this is this need for glitter rock again. Yeah. <laughs> it's Miramax's need for glitter yeah, rock. Yeah, exactly. Right? So, ha so um, you t you've talked in interviews about the films of the '70s and mm. and the, the um, sort of the films that really did come from something like uh, Performance and mm -hmm. Clockwork Orange and McCabe and Mrs. Miller, um, and these. It seems like nowadays the whole marketing mechanism is so much more evolved that it's hard for films to really get discovered and to really mm. come out of the culture. So I'm just wondering, um, sort of, in making this film um, and evoking the films in the '70s, what you were what you were thinking of in terms of the in terms of the film culture? Um, it's an it's a really interesting question. I, I, a lot of people probably read that book, uh, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, about the whole decade of '70s filmmaking. And uh, it's it's there's a lot full of. Did you read it? Did you read the Peter? Biscuit I read thing? long excerpts in Vanity I mean, Fair. I, I really not. recommend it. it uh -huh. It's there's a lot of gossip and there's a lot of dishing of. But uh, one thing that's so interesting about it, just purely from a business standpoint, mm -hmm. is the way films have changed and the way they they get distributed today. Uh, and it happened with with uh, Jaws in '75 mm -hmm. when they decided. If people remember before '75, it was very uncommon for any major release 
to open, you know, citywide or, or na nationally, open mm -hmm. in all the theaters at once. They would usually be an exclusive, exclusive engagement. And there would be this ability for a film to, uh, you know, enter into the sort of consciousness of the public and, and be discussed and people would read reviews and wait in line and talk about it. And finally, weeks and weeks later, it would open citywide. <clears throat> and that changed when Jaws was a major release by a studio that they decided, hey, let's just try every theater at once. Mm -hmm. And of course, they made so much money that mm -hmm. that's been, you know, the, the mold ever since. And it's mm -hmm. changed the way films get uh, received. It changes the way the possibilities for them for many different kinds of films to uh, enter into the you know consciousness of, of uh, hmm. all of us, and um, so th that that was that was an interesting just sort of purely money you know yeah. uh, dot, you know whatever yeah. encouraged uh, um, whatever a change in the way films mm -hmm. get marketed. Yeah. But Velvet Goldmine was very much a I mean I I, I the seventies is a really interesting period for a lot of different reasons mm -hmm. to me. It's been well established how rich American filmmaking was during that period, mm -hmm. and there was a sort of window of opportunity for director-driven films to be made, largely on the mm -hmm. success of Easy Rider, mm -hmm. um, that went away at a certain point. And we haven't really seen anything quite like it. And I think the independent cinema scene that everyone was talking about in the 80s was sort of a hope that, wow, right. there could be some really, you know, yeah. real, uh, you know, Films with integrity coming out again from yeah. from from directors, and, I, and I'm not sure that that's really been proven as true as we'd like to think. You know, there's all, of course um, in the way that the film this film looks at music, the music scene and glam rock. There's mm -hmm. the same kind of feeling that you're celebrating a period, um, and there's this double sense throughout the whole film of celebration and. Um, Lament. I, I, that's a good word. I was looking for a word like that. Um, yeah, at the same time. So yeah. how did you... Uh, I, that must be a hard balance to pull off, like when you're writing the film and making the film, to get those two things going on at the same In time. In a way, the lament aspect is what gave me permission to do a film this affirmative. Hmm. So uh, in a way, and when I listened to bands like Roxy Music, uh, I felt that there was this um, amazing amount of uh, sort of lo longing and, and uh, mm -hmm. loss, I guess, uh, a sense of... Uh, the lyrics are in past tense. Most oh, yeah. of it is set in this sort of mournful uh, look back to something lost. Even from the very beginning, from the very first record, right. the whole sentiment that it sort of stirs up is about loss and um, yeah. things that are no longer really available. There's a sort yeah. of mournful quality about that, which interested me a great deal. And I yeah. sort of wanted to cloak the whole film in that kind of uh, loss. Uh, hmm. But still, show you what was maybe possible for a brief time, yes. you know, through the fans' point of view, and mm -hmm. definitely, uh, in, in you know, framed by this very repressive uh, yeah. 1984, which certainly sort of stands in for the present day. Right, know. right. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what? But there is this double layer. Um, so it's not look, the 90s looking at the 70s. You put the 80s in in between. So there's it's looking at the glam rock period from the perspective of the 80s in the present day. So I'm just wondering where that 80s layer came in. I mean, the, the 80s thing was really, in a way, I wanted everything in the film to be um, uh, something that came out of the 70s, even, even a look to the future. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and there was a very interesting element in, 70, in, in glitter rock music and, and uh, themes that 
that came out, particularly as it sort of progressed from 73 to 74 um, to 75, I guess, where there was this sort of doomful, you know, a sort of sense of a, of a doomful future lurking on the horizon. Uh, Bowie's record, I mean, Dogs, is a good example, and it was, it was uh, based on the George Orwell book, and he wanted to actually do... Um, mm do a musical or some treatment of 1984 and was refused the rights and did Diamond Dogs instead. Um, but also even, even like Cabaret, which was a huge hit in 1973 and fit right into as a sort of metaphor for this decadent, you know, glitter culture and, and pop culture that was very celebrated at the time, right. but with this sort of implication that there was something very dangerous looming on, on the horizon yeah. as well, that this decadence couldn't really last, that it was going to explode. Yeah. And in many ways they were right, of course. I mean, there was yeah. something that really did come around. It wasn't maybe as glamorous and flashy and, and apocalyptic as, as yeah. they were suggesting, but there was something very repressive yeah. uh, about to happen. And in film at the time, you could have dark endings. I mean, the endings yeah. of movies in yeah. the 70s were unsettling and, and disturbing, and that yeah. sort of stopped. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the... You talk about loss before, and um, I'm wondering how that relates to, to childhood, because a lot of your films sort of deal with childhood in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, in, you know, there's um, this section in, in Poison of a suburban childhood seems to, you know, maybe be, you know, have, have to do with your own suburban childhood, mm -hmm. um, super, you know, introducing dolls in your films. And, and to start this film with... Um, with Oscar Wilde and delivery of a child at the beginning. So I'm just wondering if you had any, if there was any specific idea. Um, it's funny, the autobiographical, with the exception yeah. of Dottie, mm -hmm. really nothing in my films start from an autobiographical point. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I find mm -hmm. incredible personal material and connections in the process of yeah. researching, writing, and making the films, mm -hmm. but rarely is that where I begin from. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it, it's, it's funny, I'm, I'm almost more excited and intrigued by things that don't seemingly have any direct connection to my, to my experience, like anorexia or something. Right. And then in the process of doing it, discovering something very, un, you know, close that I, that I can relate to in so many different ways that I wouldn't yeah. have expected, you know. Yeah. Um, and with Glamrock, no, I, I, I wished I could be Arthur Stewart. I wish <laughs> I could have been that English kid who, because in America it was very... It was sort of impossible to have it hit you, or virtually impossible, I think, to have it yeah. kind of sweep you uh, unawares, you know, kind yeah. of just coming in from all sides and, and having that little innocent, you know, yeah. suburban mentality be assaulted by all these possibilities. In, in America, you yeah. kind of had to be in the know a little bit more because mm -hmm. it wasn't quite as ma mainstream a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and in a way, it was those films like Clockwork Orange and Performance and 2001 that were my equivalent yeah. to a glitter rock thing, <laughs> films that took me out of my my suburban life and gave me, uh, you know, sort of demanded uh, interaction in a way, mm -hmm. some kind of a, um, you know, they, they entered your imagination and they made you think and they made you think that there was possibilities as mm. an artist or as a thinker or as a young person. So at the time of, uh, that Glitter Rock was big, how, did, how was it striking you? I mean, you were about 13 or 14 at the time. I was, so. even, I was even a bit younger than that. Mm -hmm. But, but uh, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was I, I was aware of it. I mean, mm -hmm. and, and it's funny, when I did my research later, I found out, because I grew up in L.A., that there was a really massive Glitter Rock scene in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, typified by very young, mostly 
teenage girls who hung out at this club called Rodney Bingenheimer's Old, Old English uh, Pub on Sunset Bo on the Strip. And Bowie would go when he still had his long hair, and then he went when he was the Ziggy thing, and Iggy went, and, and you know, and they all went and hung out at this place. And it was this really raging scene in, hmm. in L.A. And I, the, the way it trickled down to me... At what time was that? What? This is like from 71 hmm. to 74, pretty much. Hmm. Um, and the way I sensed it was more, because I was still... I did go to a private high school later on where I met kids who lived all over the city, uh, sort of artsy private school. But uh, at that point, I was in junior high public school, and so I was very much it was very much your, you know, your neighborhood kids that you went to school with. But still, there were these girls that were like these very precocious girls that you know, in the early '70s in America, people were into hippies, mm -hmm. and you know, you couldn't buy a new pair of blue jeans without taking them into the backyard and running them over in the car 20 times and putting them in the swimming pool for a week <laughs> and then washing them 50,000 times before you dare wear them to school because if they looked new, you were like. So uncool. All of a sudden, these girls were wearing bright red nail polish, new shiny clothes, lipstick, like hmm. glossy flavored lipsticks, you know, and, and being very banal, very like, oh yeah, Bowie, oh, you know, bye. <laughs> Bowie's bye. And like, bye. You know? um, and so it was sort of, and as I learned a bit more about what that was all yeah. about, it was sort of um, a, a dangerous kind mm. of something I couldn't quite yeah. uh, meet, you know. I, I, and yet I felt like I had sort of, I had to put it aside and go, I'm going to get back to this later. Mm. You know, <laughs> like yeah. you do, I think, when you're disturbed, I think, yeah. when you're young. So the, the boundary, I mean, one thing that the film, <laughs> what the film really explores is that the, the boundary crossing was much more... Um, bizarre than it is today. There's a, there's a sense, one thing that I think the film is doing is sort of looking at um, uh, the questioning the politically correct definitions of gay and that there's mm -hmm. um, an idea today that there's more gay culture of, overtly in, right. in our culture but that, that the definitions are also more rigid at the same time yeah. today. Yeah. So. Well, more, more organized around traditional notions of identity, politics, yeah. I guess, as people yeah. have termed it. Um, and what was pretty amazing to me, or radical to me, in a yeah. lot of interesting ways about the sexual uh, climate in this period, is that it was so uh, bent on breaking down uh, the, the neat little categories that we, that we mm -hmm. love as a, yeah. as a culture. Mm -hmm. uh, straight, gay, you know, male, female. It was really interested in blurring those lines. And, and that's far more dangerous to yeah. either side. So for that. David Bowie to come out and say, I'm gay, but then to be calling his parents and assuring him that he's not really gay. And... Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, you'll hear every possible story right. about Bowie's, you know, yeah. coming out and all of that. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, it's pretty well documented yeah. that he was he explored like most people did right. at that time but i've spoken to people who you know like Mick Rock the photographer uh uh who did all the Bowie record covers and Lou Reed and Cron you know he was the he, the main man photographer with the yeah. their company and traveled with them and he you know he was this probably at any other point in history just this straight nice straight guy you know mm -hmm. but who just so was sucked into this world and mm -hmm. uh i think it took him about 20 years to begin to be able to really talk about what happened because it was a complete and total, you know, trip, yeah. you know, and people were really going for it and trying drugs and trying sexual experiments. And, yeah. 
you know, and, and, and even if they, you weren't, you pretended that you were. Hmm. You made it look like you were. Uh, this will sound like a really sort of simplistic question, but where in all the, the you're thinking now about glam rock, where, where did it come from? Because it's so different than everything in, in rock sort of leading up to it was, um, you know, towards ex expressing yourself and being natural and right. being, fr right. and, and so this, this total artifice, which you relate to Oscar Wilde and, and relate to British theatrical traditions, right. like where did it come from? Like, how, how did it erupt? Because it was so... I mean, it was, it was, came it's so. clear that there were traces of it in rock and roll from Elvis, mm -hmm. Little Richard, <laughs> the Kinks, yeah. the Stones. You know, there were yeah. examples of androgyny definitely throughout all of, all of those uh, different periods. But um, never had it become so overt, so mm -hmm. completely in your face before. And I think never had the whole idea of putting on a show been mm -hmm. so much the point of, of mm -hmm. the, what they really wanted to put. But with a kind of, uh, you know, with a, a, an, an element of attack mm -hmm. and critique to the 60s culture and all of its assumptions. Yeah. Um, so it came from many different things. I think Warhol is a huge influence mm. you can't underestimate, you know, for both the way that, you know, it, he produced the Velvet Underground, who became a key influence to people like Bowie right. and to... Brian Ferry and Roxy Music, but uh, the whole sensibility that that put out there, yeah. that one, you know, you could become a star by dressing the part and, yeah. and performing, and you could recreate the star system in some dinky loft in, you know, in, in New York, and, and it would be this ability to sort of, you know, replicate that whole process, but deconstruct it at the same time. Yeah, there was a lot of fascination way. with early Hollywood. I mean, we see the, mm. the Gene Harlow. Yeah. Picture yeah. is a homage to that, but yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, but I mean, I don't think it could have happened as as you've already suggested. Yeah. You know, without it couldn't have happened anywhere but in England, yeah. and it couldn't have happened yeah. without that tradition, that really strange. But um, since you mentioned Warhol, I have to ask you about mm. Jack Smith, which was another. Oh Because yeah. now there's discussion on the internet in the um, experimental film group discussion about your film and. Oh really? And, and, I have to see this. Thing. Yeah, and Jack Smith and Flaming. Um, so obviously Jack oh, uh, Ferry. Yeah, yeah. The, the relation of Jack Ferry to Jack Smith. Yeah. yeah. No, Jack Smith. Jack Ferry is <laughs> named after Jack Smith. Okay. And, and uh, was sort of meant to be that kind of uh, character like Jack Smith was, who was this sort of, uh, almost like a little Richard, like someone who, where it, it was going to happen, no matter where this person, or, or, you know, mm -hmm. found himself living, whatever city, whatever yeah. era, he would become this thing, yeah. this bizarre collection of, of uh, you know, costumes and illusions. Yeah. And, and, um, and the fact that little Richard erupted in, you know, Alabama in yeah. the era that he did is, is incomprehensible in a way. Mm -hmm. There was some incredible <laughs> force inside that was just going to happen. Yeah. You know? And I, I just wanted not to get into authenticity too much here, but, right. uh, but to distinguish that from what the Brian Slade character represents, right. which is this much more savvy yeah. ability to sort of sense what's going on in the zeitgeist right. and pull from it. And maybe this, this, these kinds of Jack Smiths and Jack Fairies and wouldn't ever come to light. And in many ways, Jack Smith didn't. You know, he remains mm -hmm. a very obscure peripheral yeah. figure, although he's, yeah. a lot of people now realize how important he was, yeah. but he didn't make the impact that he may have yeah. liked to have made. The, the film, what's interesting in the film is the, the, there's a lot of references to real people, and there's a lot of fiction. And um, I mean, obviously, the big reference is David Bowie, but the film is not about David Bowie, and, and Bowie's music isn't in it. So I'm just wondering if you could talk about what, like, how does Bowie play into this? For it, you? It, it, it is about Bowie. 
I mean, it's about, I mean, it, I can't not say that it, I mean, Bowie yeah. is such a huge, he's the most influential figure in that whole period, as far mm -hmm. as I'm concerned. And the, maybe even beyond the music that he produced, the images that he created are the ones that I think sum up, you know, the period the most powerfully. Mm -hmm. And those images affected everybody around mm -hmm. him and people copied him, you know. Uh, and he copied them. I mean, it was a kind of free system of, of, you know, equal opportunity stealing for everybody, yeah. um, which he was extremely articulate about. There was yeah. no hiding it. He called himself a human Xerox machine, you know, <laughs> in the early 70s. Uh, and what was funny about Bowie and amazing about him and it, what made me know that I could only approach this film as a fiction is that the way in which he constructed himself many times over and then literally, you know, uh, a la Warhol, this, there was this production of a play called Pork uh, that came out in 1970 and played in New York and in London. And it was a second generation group of Warhol actors. Uh, and it was this outrageous play based on the you know, phone conversations Warhol would have about parties that he had attended the night before mm. that Bridget Polk would transcribe before the diaries. Mm. And they turned, this play, turned it into this play. Mm. And it had nudity and sex and, you know, I think it was like a white, so, so 1970, like a white set, all white, with a right. white plastic table <laughs> and a big chocolate cake on the, on the table. And that was it. And then like a lot of nudity and, you know, uh, uh, oh, Cherry Vanilla was in it. And she's always just popping her top off and, you know, like jumping into the cake and rubbing it, you know, it's just all that kind of stuff. Um, Bowie, <laughs> Bowie and Angela saw it in 1970 and were blown away. You know, mm -hmm. Like, wow, this is, this is New York, this is really edgy. <laughs> and, uh, they, and, and the pork cast had heard about Bowie, this guy who wears a dress, and they thought, wow, he's going to be great. So they all met up. And, of course, Bowie was just still in his sort of floppy hat, long hair, kind of hippie mode, which they were so uninto. Mm -hmm. Angela was wild and fantastic and crazy. And they had all already plucked all their eyebrows and drawn them back on, you know, like 1930s style, uh, dyed their hair, were wearing platform shoes and glitter mm. in like 1970. Mm. Uh, next time they saw Bowie, he had shaved his eyebrows, mm. dyed his hair, put on platform shoes. Right. And when they set up this main man studio, when Bowie changed managers and got Tony DeFries, who... Uh, Eddie Izzard is sort of doing a, you know, uh, tribute to. Um, <laughs> the whole idea was let, literally, as the film suggests, in, in much broader uh, terms, but not that much more broad, uh, let's put on a show. They hired the, the entire cast of Pork hmm. to be Bowie's entire company, hmm. Main Man. Hmm. So they became the vice president of Main Man, the press attache, the, you know, tour director. The, and these people had never done any of this stuff before. They were just these crazy New York... Mm. Nuts. Yeah. And they performed Bowie's success to the world. Mm. And it worked. And they did everything that the film, you know, coyly uh, or not so coyly suggests. Like, l play it like you're a star. Right. Buy two of everything. The best of everything. Put it on RCA credit. So credit was just racked up. Yeah. They would buy out huge houses that he had no business thinking he could fill, and they papered them and filled yeah. them with people. And, you know, they just really played it to the hilt. So the ways in which real life and fiction and fiction making and the way that at this particular time in the music industry that was very susceptible to hype in ways that because it was moving sort of from a cottage industry in the 60s to what would eventually become a mega corporate industry of the late 70s and at this particular point it was susceptible to these kinds of you know machinations and of hmm. public uh, points of view hmm. like probably in no other time they were yeah. just right ready poised for that take hmm. advantage of that 
What was the production of this film like for you? Because you're taught, it's so much about spectacle, and, and, you, and you ha it has to be big and, and um, yeah. spectacular. And um, I you know, rarely talk to directors about what, what your budget is and, 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 all, and things like that, but the fact that this, it's sort of been out in the press that you had a very limited budget, $7 million to make this. And um, <coughs> never having done anything on this scale and working with that kind of budget, what was it, just what was it like no. producing? producing this, it not, was, not it to bring back horrible. unpleasant memories. No, it was really, really tough. Uh, Christine Vashon's book, actually, if people have, have heard about it, shooting, it's to, shooting kill. to Kill, and it has some uh, of her journals from the shoot, and they're really, excuse me, they're really uh, painful for me to read, because yeah. <laughs> uh, they bring it all back. It was just the hard, it was the hardest thing I've ever, ever set out mm -hmm. to do. And it were, it were not for the fact that I really did surround myself with fantastic people, you know, great actors who I love. I loved working with and I've become good friends with a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, and amazing designers and, yeah. and technicians and a really great uh, crew in London. Uh, I don't know how I would have yeah. gotten through it, you know. And, I, and Christine and I didn't really have fun ever when we were shooting it, but they all did. And I think we <laughs> made it possible for them to have fun. Christian yeah. Bale said at the end, he was like, you know, Todd, I've never worked on a film before where, you know, I always know that there's all that bullshit going on hmm. with the production in any movie, no matter what. But I've never uh, not felt it before, hmm. which I couldn't believe. I mean, I just, I, I just felt like, he's got to be kidding me. Because hmm. we were, you know, new and I didn't particularly have the same experience. But uh, I, I'm just glad that was yeah. true for a lot of the yeah. actors. Um, there's such a sense of, of structure to it, which, I mean, we are talking about before, which I... It, once you've seen the film a few times, you see how intricate it is. Right. But but you also want to want it to have the feeling of of freedom. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, sort of, what um, the the writing process was like, and how you know how um, you found the structure to it. I mean, the yeah, yeah. it was it was it was tough. It was a mm -hmm. lot of it was a lot of distillation, I guess, mm -hmm. and a lot of ideas, trying to get them down to the purest sort of condensation of a lot of, you know, almost so that things became almost archetypal events yeah. in, in the classic rock and roll movie in a way. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, the story is kind of generic. Uh -huh. And it was always, it was never intended to be much more than that. And it really was meant to operate much more at the level of spectacle and music and, you know, like, a, yeah. like an opera or like a musical. Yeah. Um, and which you don't really go to for story per se, maybe operas you do, mm -hmm. but uh, but musicals, the stories are sort of symbolic of other things, and the emotion is found more through the surrounding elements, the color mm -hmm. and music and, and you yeah. know, spectacle. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's it's a, it, I, I'm not sure. I, I think it may be a curse to the film as well. I know a lot of reviewers are like, you know, it seems so disorganized and so. Uh, all over the place when you see it on a first viewing, and many people who mm -hmm. see it a second time really do see that it's actually very, very planned out. And every it was very hard while we were shooting. Uh, we were running behind. Uh, financiers were kind of slight, not being horrible, but slightly. Well, they probably were to Christine, and she was protecting me from it. Hmm. But uh, they were saying he's got to cut scenes. He's got to cut scenes. Hmm. And I really couldn't. And I wanted to cut scenes. I mean, hmm. I wanted to lighten the love for myself more than right. anything. But I couldn't. Everything had some narrative piece of information that was going to connect to something else. Yeah. It was this real like jigsaw puzzle that was very uh, pre-planned, hmm. and it was very hard to like change that in midstream. It was impossible yeah. to. Yeah. So we really shot the script. And when you see, if you read the script, it's 
available outside of it. <laughs> uh, it's, it's weird how close it is to the film. I think that's unusual for most yeah. uh, films. It, yeah. It's very, very, uh, very close. Um, Ewan McGregor is so great in the movie, but it wasn't, um, it was sort of, might have seemed like an odd choice in the beginning to cast a British actor in this, like, such an essentially American yeah, role. I know, I know. So just talk about sort of casting him, and then um, he's a pretty good musician, pretty good musical yeah, performer. He really, he really is. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I saw Train Spotting, and I was really blown away by that performance, mm -hmm. and I couldn't think of an American actor in his generation who had the same kind of energy. Uh, there's this, you know, there's some great young actors, male actors in America, but there's this sort of tradition now that's kind of a, um, maybe a James Dean throwback of the sort of Johnny Depp kind of brooding, introspective, kind of like heavy mm -hmm. feet, weight, you know, feet yeah. on the ground kind of thing. And you, I wanted Kurt Wilde to be this volatile uh, character who could surprise you, who could just leap in the air suddenly, sort of flame-like kind of quality. And I just couldn't think of any. I thought of like a young Sean Penn or something, but that I couldn't think of a real yeah. parallel today. So um, he was the only actor going into the process of casting that I actually had a real firm feeling that it was going to work with yeah. him. I went after him pretty pretty early. Um, and I, I was ple really pleased with it. All the actors were playing some hybrid. No one was really themselves. What they were, yeah. yeah. I mean, Johnny, who's Irish, was playing English. Tony's Australian, was playing English and American. And Ewan was Scottish, playing American. And Christian was English, but playing Mancunian mm -hmm. with his perfect Manchester accent. But uh, so everyone was uh, faking it. Hmm. Do you have a sense, I mean, have you been able to see the film with enough audiences to get a sense? I'm curious of, like, for, of how this film might play to teen audiences or younger audiences. I mean, Yeah, that's what I really wanted it to, like, mm -hmm. somehow... You know, despite all of its ideas and its, you know, poetic, you know, liberties and all of that, yeah. that it somehow could, uh, because those movies, again, going back to that, those, those films from the late 60s, early 70s, which came out of drug culture, like performance is probably the, the one I paid the most attention to right. while I was making this film. Uh, they're esoteric, they're kind of like, you know, they're, they're purposefully vague and the stories are... They don't always hold together, yeah. you know, but you don't care. You're in it for something much more trippy and kind of self-revelatory and, you know, something that's going to, you're going to learn something about who you are in the process of watching these films. And like a drug experience, I guess, which is mm -hmm. where what the, these films really did come from. Um, and that's the level. And yet those kinds of films don't get made today. Yeah. Yeah. I just can't think of anything quite like that, that kids can sort of, obsess over, you know, right. and like I did and play, you know, see it over and over again and play the soundtrack with your friends and analyze it, you know. Uh, right. That's what I really ho hoped could happen. I want to give the audience a chance to ask questions if anybody wants to jump in and um, ask about this film or any of Todd's other, other work. Right here. Yeah, I've got a question. Um, you mentioned that you're mostly Gold gold mine. Gold mine. Kind of gold mine. <laughs> <laughs> Easy to do that.
one person apparently it, you know, was abused as a child or wounded as a child. One was blames herself for a tragedy. Um, and then in here, you got Jack Ferry's beaten out by kids, discovers his, you know, away with the mask. Um, Brian stays. Yeah, observes the two older men having sex. And yet the protagonists are kind of, they come along at this from another angle. And I'm wondering if if that's intentional, if that reflects that that your upbringing is maybe as dramatic as the supporting characters. Hmm. That's really interesting. I hadn't really, yeah, I hadn't seen, it's true, Carol, and Arthur are these sort of observers in a way, trying to do do the right thing and fit in the right way. You know, obviously Arthur's he does world. get his share of torture though from his parents. So. Yeah, but after yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you're drawing it to an autobiographical question. Let me think. Uh, yeah, and if there's an intent, if that's intentional. Or not. No, I guess I guess it's not because it's not, not something I thought. I mean, I really do see the two films as the opposite sides of a coin in that, in that they are both very much about questions of identity, but one obviously safe, which, you know, gives you no real, sort of, you know, gives you the wrong answers to, to what we're supposed to be, you know, in the world. Uh, and Velvet Goldmine offers this little brief moment of, of radical alternatives, perhaps, to what the world usually, you know, favors. Um, but yeah, I never, I hadn't really, I mean, there's really interesting, it's interesting, I have to think about it more. But I, I, yeah, I'm not sure how it relates to me personally. Uh, but I, yeah, I think the directors are observers and that's probably innate to us. Okay, down here. This, this well, it's obviously a sexual thing, but for me, I was just listening recently to the 66 bootleg tapes of Dylan. And right. um, as one reference, and listening to the audience, like, and Judas and get so yeah. upset at his electrification and then watching your film, which now I've seen twice, and uh, the whole Bowie thing meant a lot to me when I was growing up. And to my perception, I don't see that kind of passion for music. It might just be my perception. I'm just wondering if you see that or what you think with these days. Yeah. Oh, today. Nobody seems, like yeah. I can't imagine anybody screaming at Madonna besides who yeah. Huh. Come out playing swing or, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I hate I hate contributing to the to something that's in me, an instinct that's in me, which is a bit of a passant, I guess. Someone who you know does look back a lot and and what because when you do think about the late sixties, early seventies, and the climate of just even in the most generic sense, in the most mainstream sense, the way in which we were sort of forced to question authority and have some contempt for, you know, power and money and people who just want to make it in the world. I mean, those ideas are so unbelievably foreign to the contemporary, you know, world that we're in now. It's, it's, it is shocking to me how really that wasn't that long ago. Uh, but it feels like so far away when you really get back to the mindset. You know, you just watch a show like Laugh-In, which was a big, popular mainstream hit on television, and the implicit political ideas, you know, uh, in, in that show. Or it's interesting to watch Saturday Night Live over the years, the way uh, humor has political sort of focus or undercurrent um, that seems purposeful. You know, the earliest Saturday Night Live seemed to be the most 
you know, targeted to stuff that was going on in the world. And then you, you get to different other generations of it. And they're just going through the same motions and doing the same kinds of skits, but there's no point. There's no real target. And the humor is weak and silly and sort of gimmicky, you know? So, yeah, I, I, again, but I, I keep thinking, no, there's, I don't want to, like, uh, reject what's going on today for, for, you know, without really examining it closely. It's a very different world that we're in, and there are a lot of... I do think young people in certain cities, and there's a great progressiveness and openness to ideas that wasn't possible hmm. when I was young. But, uh, but I, I, I think they don't always know what to do with that. There's not really a place to direct it, you know? Everything was like a protest when I was growing up and in college. What, you know, any, any problem, you just go out and start protesting. Uh, and people don't have any, not that that was always, you know, practical and good, but, uh, but yeah, it's very different. Hmm. Okay, right there. Um, I, I wonder if this is accidental or not, but the Kirk Wilde character, at times he looked like Kirk Cobain. And my friend and I were just talking about that, and that's sort of like what you're saying about the hybrids and how these people come out from, you know, various parts of the country. Yeah. It's interesting that, that there he is in the film almost, even though it's not about his music or anything, but it was really striking. It's really funny. For being such a control freak that I am, that, I have to confess, was absolutely and totally accidental. And Ewan himself didn't even realize it. Hmm. You know, he just happened, his, his physical features with that wig on just looked so much like Kurt Cobain. Yeah. I mean, that wasn't something that he planned at all. He really, he was really thinking hmm. of Iggy and Lou and the, the historically, you know, uh, useful people to, to look to. Uh, but it, and it really wasn't even something we we picked up on on set. It was something in the editing room. Jim and I are like, <laughs> <laughs> the only time the only time he brought it up is when we were having one of our earliest discussions about the film. He hadn't even read the script yet, and we were in London having coffee, and he <laughs> said, "You know, actually, once I was mistaken for Kurt Cobain." <laughs> and you can't when Ewan's not like skinny, like lost a little weight in his normal hair. You don't see it. It just doesn't. I, I was like, huh, I don't really see that. And he said he was at some rave once, and, uh, and I think it was after Kurt Cobain had died, and girls who were tripping were coming over a mountaintop, <laughs> and they saw Ewan, and one girl was like, oh my God. And, <laughs> and Ewan went. <laughs> but that, and then I, it went out of my head from that point on. It's very funny. I don't mind it for the reasons that you said, because it does sort of, yeah. Yeah. He's named after Kurt Davis, a friend of Jim Lyons, my co-story writer, who is this great sort of punk, gay punk guy who died and who was great spirit. But. Okay, right there. Yeah, the, uh, the whole David Bowie thing is interesting. Even the film is named after a David Bowie song, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, in the bedroom scenes when there's photos on the wall of all the glam rock people, I saw Roy Wood there was a slave himself. There's no David Bowie pictures. Um, we were, it, was, it, was, it was tricky to know what kind of, um, you know, real life, uh, real characters to put into, into background scenes. Because, you know, we were reconstructing it all. It was meant to be like a parallel universe to the real universe, or like a dream that you have where all of the real things are mixed up and out of place, proper place. So we were, you, you obviously know all those 
those bands well, which which people in England will will know better than in America. But uh, and again, it's a quick shot where we just sort of pan by. So I didn't want you know I, d I didn't want to draw a huge amount of attention to which of the peripheral bands would play. But again, we picked people from the more mainstream side of the glitter scene. Like we didn't put pictures of Brian Ferry in or any of the sort of art school tradition that the film is really focused on. We chose to do the more you know glitzy ones. But yeah, Elton John's in the in the uh, magazine, you know. So yeah, it's one of those little. Okay, over here. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the decision to make a fiction film on this real period, and if uh, there's any sense of um, how you how you would address people who may feel something's missing, who are also excited by that period, who want to get to the real stories or rumors or figures or whatever. To me, the whole, um, you know, the whole um, tradition of trying to get to the real truth, uh, particularly when we tell st movies about famous people, is very suspect and, and wrought with all kinds of contradictions. And yet they're fun. We all like it. And we sort of don't care. You know, there's a real pleasure in just watching it. Oh, that's Tina Turner. That's what happened, you know. And in a way, the glitter rock people while being so dismissed afterwards for this kind of attitude, were ultimately maybe a few steps ahead of that conundrum, you know, in that they were acknowledging the artifice from the outset and with a great deal of wit and irony and pleasure in what was inherently fake. Not just about standing up, the fact that I'm up here in a spotlight and glitter clothes and you're down there in the dark watching me, that there's a huge difference there. But I ultimately, I think, it levels of identity by saying that identity is fake and that we dress up every day into who we are. And, and these artists are going to take it to such a degree that they're going to change who they are every year. It's going to be Ziggy Stardust and then Aladdin Sane and then Thin White Duke and mm -hmm. Halloween Jack and, you know, endless succession of characters that fans were invited to impersonate and mirror themselves with and, and change who they were, you know. Accordingly, and when you're a young person, and everything is unstable, and every minute seems like, you know, a year, uh, that to me was a really healthy offering. Something that really was liberating, and, and like, yeah, it's all right. Changes was the was the word. There wasn't the whole idea of like finding who you are and sticking to it and being true to that uh, was was being questioned in a really brilliant and way. This, this what you're describing is what all your films are, as different as all your films are, that's what all of them are really about. And, um, and of course, the ultimate film that questions identity is Citizen Kane, which is such a structuring mm -hmm. idea for your films. I'm mm -hmm. wondering how, um, I guess, two different questions. One is uh, how the Citizen Kane thing came in. Um, and then it seems like what glam rock is about is so much about what your whole approach to filmmaking is about. I don't know, that's maybe too big a question. Well, but. no, I think in many ways, except, except that, as I said earlier, I, I'm often more comfortable taking a critical perspective to issues in the world as I see it, mm -hmm. and not, you know, even, even in a film like, like Poison, which, you know, draws from Genet so heavily, I always had a real, like, ooh, I can't give Genet to the world. Right. I can't do that. It's mm -hmm. not possible. All you, I can do is 
you know, quote from him, but interpret it solely through my eyes as an Ameri American filmmaker in, in the yeah. 90s, early 90s, doing a treatment of, of that work. And, but more talking about what in America right now makes that work pertinent, are those issues pertinent? What problems or constraints or, or restrictions uh, make that necessary to think about? And then you can think about it yourself and find your own solution. Um, but yeah, Glamrock, the, the Velvet Goldmine film is probably the, the one that does, um, you know, actually give you a little taste of something different, uh, hmm. of a different kind of pleasure that, hmm. you know, that then it, it's just, there's a reservoir around it of, of loss and, and accessibility. But, um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I know with people who, who, ha who bring a lot of history and memories and associations to this period, this can be a frustrating film to watch, especially the first time, where you're sitting there like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, that isn't, you know, it's like, it's all mixed up. And, uh, but I just think to really appreciate and embrace what they were doing, you have to acknowledge it's, it's, it's complete liberation from notions of truth and mm -hmm. realness and what really happened. I also think we never know what really happens behind closed doors with famous people. We want to know. What we do know, and some of them give you no clues, they, they shut the door, that's it. And we sit there going, oh man, what's going on? But these guys flirted with their audience and put out so many clues and played their characters off stage and on stage. And there's pictures of Bowie kissing Lou Reed and, and you know, Mick Jagger and you know, there's all of this stuff circulating. And to me, that gets out into the world. That's real. That's like stuff kids take home and look at and think about and fantasize. And it, it triggers real, you know, responses, physical, emotional. To me, that's more real than anything that we could ever know about famous people and maybe more interesting. And these artists were actively engaged in, you know, putting that stuff out there. So. Okay, down here. Go ahead. Um, actually, I just two questions. One is that uh, I if the, how you, because there seems to be not a, almost not a moment where there's not music in the film. Mm -hmm. And if the music before the structure of the images or, or how that works? Hmm. Do people hear that question in the back? No. no. There's so much music throughout the film. Did, did the images um, come from the music? Was the music there first and that suggested the images? Yeah, for the, to a large degree, this, the music was there in the writing stage. Uh, and whole scenes would be written almost verse by verse, paralleling a certain song. Um, sort of like it was a musical in many ways. And it was interesting at times like the song Sweet Thing by David Bowie was, was a, I wanted to use it in the rooftop scene at the end. And uh, the dialogue was written in and around the verses. And, and then we couldn't use the song. And in this case, we just, I just lifted the song out and was left with this, this structure. And it worked really well without the music, I think. I, like, I think I like it more, I think the music maybe underscores the points more than they need to be uh, made. So that was an exception to, to the rule, but for the most part, the music was there from the beginning. And then the other thing is just a little, a little question. If you make an equation between the transformation from, from uh, Slade to the Stone character with like Ziggy Stardust to Let's Dance, would I? I never, it never occurred to me until now. It's funny that you say that. No, of course. I mean, you know, it was grotesque what happened to many uh, of the key 
glitter figures in the 80s. Uh, and, 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 but I mean that, not to, not to just you know, shy away from a, focusing it onto Bowie, but, but in a way no one was, was exempt from that, or very few people were. And, and, uh, and, and actually Bowie's very critical about that period now. He, hmm. He's really dismissive of it, which is interesting because it is his most you know, financially successful period. But uh, yeah, but I mean, yeah, it was a lot of horrible things happening. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.